Hi there, it's Nick here. Thanks so much for your continued support of the Nick Luck Daily Podcast. Wherever you consume your podcast, it is great to have you with us. I would alert you again to the racing app which is your one-stop shop and the easiest place now to download the show each and every morning as soon as it's ready. Many of you are doing so already, and that's not just because you can get access to all 880 episodes of this show, and very easily as well, but you can also watch live races. You can watch all the replays, and you can stream in the card with an active Fitstairs account. So do download it now, uh, the racing app. It's your one-stop shop and you will be able to catch up on all the previous episodes of your favourite daily racing podcast. You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Friday, January the 19th. Very cold here in TW11. Probably the coldest day of the winter so far. As such, havoc wreaked across the land as regards racing this weekend. You'll be familiar with the situation by now. But here is the update. Ascot off, Haydock off, Taunton very, very likely to be off, according to Jason Loosemore a few moments ago. Got down to minus 4.9 there last night. But that is nowhere near as cold as it got at Lingfield, who abandoned their turf racing today, race on the all-weather tomorrow, want to race on turf for their big prestigious fixture Sunday. Stephanie Weatherard is the clerk of the course. Just how cold did it get last night, Stephanie? We saw temperatures of minus 8.69 last night. Uh, we were forecast minus 4 degrees, so we, we experienced lower than forecast temperatures. Okay, and so what does that mean for the prospects of Sunday's racing going ahead? You've got the course covered. You had to abandon today, well, obviously. Um, but what, what, what's, what's it looking like for Sunday and the Fleur de Lee chase? Uh, yeah, so we uh, fleeced our track last Saturday and the fleece remained down all week. We are expected to see temperatures of plus six degrees tomorrow and then stay overnight on Saturday. It should be plus two degrees so we are remaining hopeful for Sunday that we see that forecast and it helps us get mm. the frost out of the ground. And what's your inspection uh, protocol looking like at the moment? Uh, we're inspecting at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon to assess the progress on the track. Okay, so 2 o'clock tomorrow um, and then presumably you, you'll need another one Sunday morning if you get through that. Yeah, we, we probably will need to, um, but we'll be able to update further tomorrow afternoon once we've had a look at the track all right that was stephanie weathered at linkfield i i did have to just double check with stephanie the pronunciation of her name today because if it was pronounced weathered it would be the best nominative determinism ever for a clerk of the course but it is stephanie weathered minus 8.69 at linkfield that's putting them on the back foot for sunday though she retains some optimism jonathan harding is uh, the award-winning writer on the racing post and he joins me now uh, Jonathan, Lingfield Sunday, we're clinging, we're clinging, but are we clinging to the mast of a sinking ship or should we retain some hope? Well, we've got the two sort of the last two jumps meeting standing in Britain with Fakenham and Lingfield and, and both are looking as though um, they're fighting a, a certainly an uphill battle. Um, Lingfield being the big one, it just strikes me that 
okay, there's a bit of optimism that the temperatures are going to rise over the weekend, but I think they're going to have to rise quite considerably above zero to thaw out what is a obviously very t- frozen and deeply frozen turf if you're talking about minus eight, minus nine. Um, extraordinary, really. Um, but fingers crossed. Um Difficult one to judge, I suppose, but at least they're they're being fairly transparent with it and trying to update people on conditions ahead of time. Uh, let's talk about the Clarence House chase that was set to take place at Ascot tomorrow, featuring this big clash between El Fabiello and John Bond, the two leading two-mile steeplechasers either side of the Irish Sea. Now, um, there's a lot of precedent for this race being restaged and a lot of precedent for it being restaged at Cheltenham. But... You get in, into this position, and, and there seems to be a curious omerta uh, around around issues like this, because there are so many, to use that horrible word, stakeholders to keep happy. Uh, and it seems to have prompted a fair bit of debate, um, Jonathan Harding, as to, as to whether this race should be restaged at all, if the likelihood is of a very small field or only one or the other of them turning up. Yeah, it is, a, I think, an unnecessarily complicated one at times um the common sense view would be why would you not just rearrange it it's a prestigious race it's an important race for a lot of horses that have been trained and geared towards it so it and as you say there's a precedent for running the clarence house elsewhere um i realize there are commercial decisions that have to be made and also the bha will be looking about whether it has a knock-on effect for the rest of the program but i think in this instance uh, it seems only right. And I think were they to reopen, you're going to get a, a much better race, a much deeper field. Uh, it would have been great to see John Bon El Fabiolo round three, obviously. But from a betting turnover point of view, it will probably be a more effective race reopened with more runners. Um, so yes. fingers crossed they, they do decide to salvage it. Now, 12 months ago, this was an example of um, some rare agility on the part of the industry because... The race wasn't going to be re-offered, um, and therefore you were going to land up with a, a pathetically small field. And it, again, we were going around this question then, and then the BHA did reopen, and in came editor Dejit, who duly came and won the race and beat Edward Stone and, and, and Eggman in one of the, the better races of the season. So I put the question to, to trainer Gary Moore, editor Dejit's trainer, who wasn't going to run at Ascot over the weekend, um, whether history was going to repeat itself and he would do exactly the same thing and this is what he had to say 100 percent certain yeah because i was thinking when i heard the alfaviola might not be coming over i was thinking of supplementing him anyway if it had got stayed at ascot you know um but then when i knew, knew that was definitely coming over so uh we 100 uh, percent certain we will we will uh enter if we're allowed to if the race is reopened you know yeah and of course last year you had a similar sort of irish uh, beast in an argument at the time coming over and you you didn't walk away from him and you ended up beating him and and edward stone so you're not one to walk away from a horse are you no no definitely not you know like he, he's 10 years old now so it's not as if he's gonna you were really sort of nurturing him or anything like that and you know like he's still got time to go to games for it afterwards as well you know so it'd be it'd be just you know hopefully i can't see history repeating itself but you know we've got to get the race on first haven't we you know so um uh i'm sure uh, we, we, we were definitely supplementing yeah and you did say 
Yeah, and you said last year it was a track thing as well that it, it's it, he's really effective round one and not round the other. Well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, he he, he seems to run his best racing chart, and, and the way the weather is at the moment, it, it probably the ground will be more in his favour than most of them because it it will be on the quick side, you know. All right. Well, I appreciate that, Gary. Thanks so much. I I, I gather it got. I just heard from Stephanie at uh, at Lingfield a minute ago. Eight point six minus eight point six nine down down your neck of the woods last night. I'm. Uh, Right. Minus four, I think it is. Only, moment, yeah. only, yeah. So minus four at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's actually yeah, not not yeah, warm, yeah. not that much at all, has it? No, it hasn't. No, hardly. You know, like it's driving me mad. Um, we're doing plenty of work, but nothing's galloping. You know, I won't gallop them when it's cold like this. It's, it's dangerous. And and so that's Gary Moore, and and really that's the nub of this. Yes, you can totally understand Jonathan Harding why people would say, "Well, hang on a minute, we're binning off," you know, good, good class. Well, fairly good class handicaps with with three runners or fewer, and we're prepared to spend slash waste all this money on something that could be an unedifying spectacle. But if the race is reoffered and you get a bigger field, then the BHA and Cheltenham, in all likelihood, will think, okay, this is worthwhile, even if we only get one of John Bon or El Fabiola and get six or seven others or five or six others and some editor de Jeep, Boot Hill and Co. It's going to be a good race. It's going to be a worthwhile race. You'd expect them to want to put it on, and you'd expect the levy board then to say, "Well, actually, it's going to make us a, a load more money than it would have done at Ascot last week." So, where's the downside? No, I think that's right, and it's certainly it's in keeping with this brave new era of Premier racing. You want to save and promote and push these top races. I do understand. It's almost it feels to me a separate issue about the handicap races being scrapped and, and certainly a contentious one. But in this instance, because there is a precedent, it's it's a calculated or it would be should it happen and as we expect it probably will um it's a fairly calculated risk isn't it because you know it can work you know if it's reopened there is a fairly decent pool of horses who might just fancy having a crack particularly if one of the big two does decide to stay at home i think uh off the top of my head i think nikki henderson did seem to suggest that they would follow the race where it went with John Bon, um, El Fabiolo, perhaps a little bit more up in the air because you have the travel complications. Um, but yeah, I think it will be a better race should it be reopened. All right, Groundhog Day then for the for the Clarence House. We think. Okay, on we go and let's try and assess the latest release of racing's attendance figures. Uh, Twenty twenty three figures have have come out. Um, and is it quite interesting the spin that the Racecourse Association are, are putting on these? Uh, Jonathan, just give me the give me the top lines here before we hear from their chief executive, David Armstrong. Yeah, so we've had the figures for 2023. The top lines are that 4.83 million racegoers visited British racecourses last year, uh, which is a repeat of the number posted in 2022, which is extraordinary, really, that you have it that exact. Um, throughout the year, a total of 4,836,406 racegoers attended a race meeting, providing an average attendance of 3,394, which the RCA is selling as, uh, I suppose, a positive uh, update because it's an increase of 1.43% on 2022's average. In terms of other headlines, and perhaps unsurprisingly, the major festivals in the second half of the year, which have generally trended reasonably consistently uh, they had positive uh, increases in terms of attendance new markets july festival up 9.7 percent 
uh, the Goodwood Festival, 4.8%. And Summer Jumping as well had a, a near 25% year-on-year increase uh, with 74,803 attendees in August 2023 compared to 60,130 60, in August 2022. So there's a lot of numbers and this is being sold understandably, I think, as a, a positive increase on last year. But when you look at it relative to other years and in terms of uh, some of the other figures, you would not say that racecourses are quite out of the woods yet. So just to be clear and reiterate then, total attendance is down 4.838401 to 4.836406. Okay, about the same, but actually down. Uh, the headline is racecourse attendance figures hold firm with 4.83 racegoers. And the bit that the RCA really want to stress is that Q4 attendance, October through December, continued the sport's, their quote, strong second half of the year. Uh, I asked RCA Chief Executive David Armstrong uh, to explain uh, how he could conceive of that as strong. Well, the total attendance is up 2.4% over that period and average attendance up 3%. And what we saw in the fourth quarter and, and, and in the second half of the year was we saw some very encouraging performances from some of the major festivals, um, particularly at Newmarket, both the July Festival and then the Cambridgeshire Champions Day did well, of course, uh, this year. Um, uh, Haydock Sprint Cup meeting did well. Air Gold Cup did well. So what we're seeing is definitely support for those big days, either festivals or single big days, right through the fourth, third and fourth quarter, actually. So... That's encouraging. Um, what, one of the things that I, when I was looking at these numbers that I found quite scary is the number of abandonments um, we've had in 2023. We had, I think, just looking at the numbers, it was something like... It's 59, 59. Yeah, well, 59 in the fourth quarter and 109, yeah. 105 in a year. So if, you, if you're looking at that as a, you know, that's a really quite scary trend. And you'll have seen, obviously, that we continue to have abandonments into the start of 2024. Uh, we're all looking out of you know abandonments today, this weekend, etc. So that that uh, continuing trend, whether that's climate change or whatever it is, is a concern for us, and the level of abandonments is a problem. All right, this this seems to me a concern um, to, on a, on a broader level. Twenty twenty one, when the country was still in COVID uncertainty and the uh, Omicron variant was sweeping the nation in the final quarter or in the final month of the year, at least. Um, you were still recording figures of 865,000 or thereabouts for that final quarter in 2021. Um, That's 10% more than attended in the final quarter of 2023. Uh, That doesn't suggest to me that we've reversed a worrying decline. Well, no, I don't think we're far from reversing it yet. If you think back to even pre-COVID numbers, Nick, where we were getting close to 6 million attendees. That's That's across the whole year, yeah. Well, yeah, well, that we're still behind, uh, quite a long way behind versus that. But what I've been worried about was that I expected that 2022 was likely to be, you know, the low point and was worried, therefore, in the first half of the year, we were continuing to see a slight decline. So all that, all the, the encouragement, which is, look, it's still only a modest increase in the fourth quarter. We shouldn't get carried away. But at least it sort of reversed that sort of declining trend that we saw. We've got a long way to go to get back to the 2021 numbers or to get back to uh, pre-COVID. But th- we've talked about this before. There's this increasing gap between 
the summer festivals particularly the um july and and royal ascot and glorious goodwood and york ebor performing pretty well to be honest and the rest which is performing well below par um why do you think that is well, I think there's no simple answer to why that is. I think we, we saw overall in COVID or coming out of COVID that a, a certain you know proportion of the population took much longer to get back to live sport. And we're still seeing the after effects of some of that now where it had become a more regular part of people's lives. It hasn't. And that would be, you know, that's the support for all racecourses around the country. It's not just the big festivals. People have got, you know, the big festival in their diary and they, they go to that and enjoy it every year. Um, we have to work harder on those uh, middle, you know, middle ranking and lower ranking fixtures where we've got to get, a, a, the crowd is still important to us, but we've got to make it relevant for them and exciting for them to come back. And we're, we're, that's part of what the new industry strategy is about as well. Mm. And I mean, it is a, it is a worry, though, isn't it, that we're still you know fifteen percent plus down on on twenty nineteen, even in our even in our m- most fertile period of the year, even in the the part of the year that you know you will choose to lead your press release on because you've got to put some kind of positive spin on it. What what are your members doing to re- reverse the the overall decline? Well, I think our racecourses continue to innovate in the way in which they encourage racecourses to the race, racecourse to the racecourse, the way in which they look after them when they're there. Um, you'll have seen some, I thought, some very encouraging signs, for example, at the uh, Cheltenham New Year's Day uh, fixture in relation to families and children and, and initiatives like that. I think mean, you'll see you'll see more things like that come along. Uh, David, David, you you and I both know the Cheltenham New Year's Day fixture is one of the greatest outliers in the in the sport, insofar as it's the one fixture in the year where you are guaranteed a massive local crowd. It doesn't mean others can't copy it, though. Um, well, you've only unfortunately you've only you've only got one New Year's Day though. That's the that that is the slight slight stumbling block there. That's true, and you won't get the sort of the you know another race course. You might not get that huge boost, but what you will see is us appealing to you know a wider range of customers, trying to encourage families more. We've been doing that's not new news. We've been trying to do that for years, but, but recognizing that's an important part of the demographic is bringing families to the race course and, and giving them an exciting day out. Uh, there was a point made on this on this program the other day by Celia Jovanovic after her horse won at Warwick. I don't know if you heard it, and she was saying that an equally important part of the demographic is is the older race goer, and um, there are there are plenty of people who enjoy racing who are much older in an aging population, a significant part of racing's fan base, who are not being adequately catered for. Um, do you think we need to divert? as many resources to, to, to catering for, for those people who are just saying, do you know, actually, I'm getting on a bit and it's not that comfortable an experience for me to go racing anymore. And that and you're actually losing, you are losing your fan base and not really acquiring any, any, any on the bottom. Well, no, I think, I think, look, you're absolutely right to highlight the, the older race score is hugely important to us um they're the group that were slower coming back after covid um in in some senses um and look, we we have to continue to give them you know the racing experience they want uh, on the race course as well we certainly don't uh, undervalue the older race score we see them as an important part of our audience and we have to make sure the facilities are there for them as best we can at each race course every race course is different solution every race course has different demographics but all understand the importance of the full age range of race course. And, and if, if people have 
individual needs, particularly as regards um, what they want to eat during the course of the day. Uh, I'm thinking of those race goes. I'm thinking particularly of people with young children. Uh, I might include one one of my own amongst them. Um, is it right that food gets confiscated at, at the front gate of what's supposed to be a, a welcoming, um, out, pr- primarily outdoor environment? Well, I think different race courses have different policies about that, of course. As you know, Nick, and you'll, have seen, you'll have seen somewhere you know, picnics are actively encouraged to be brought onto the race course. So it's a, a little bit of a mixed approach. Mm. And I think each race course has to make its own choice how, as to how it does that and, of course, how it handles just, uh, just off, Just off the top of your head, David, where, where, can, where can you take your own food in and, and have a picnic? Well, the one I think is the best example is Cartmel. Mm. Uh, where you're encouraged to park up on the rail, open the back of your car, and uh, bring out your picnic mm. and, and enjoy it. So there are there are there are some examples of that, and and I think those sort of days where race courses do that, some of the, the summer jumps courses I mentioned Cartmel, but some of the others do the same. It's a good example of that, and that creates a good atmosphere. Well, what about what about race courses where you can't park, you you can't drive in through the gate? You have to come in through turnstiles or or whatever. If you've got a a, a cheese sandwich in your in your bag, which you, you just want to um, nibble on between the first couple of races. Honestly, I realise that the, the race courses need to maximise their food and beverage bottom line, but yeah, there's got to be some common sense here, hasn't there? Well, I, I do think common sense is important. You've got to, you've got to handle those situation, situations with sensitivity, and you know, as I'm saying, each race course will probably have a slightly different policy as to how it does that. But you know, I would always encourage people to try to be sensitive to you know the situation of the race course. Uh, and, and one final point, really, which just underlines a lot of what we've been talking about. I noted the the Shergar Cup, and full credit to Ascot for for putting another another eight thousand racegoers on that, and the biggest attendance upswing of the year. Um, isn't it together with the upswing for the July Festival and the Cambridgeshire meeting and the Good Goodwood Festival and the Sprint Cup meeting and the Air Gold Cup? Isn't it um, evidence, really, that racecourses are getting more adept at putting on events? but they're getting less adept at catering for the sports fan base. And isn't that really the beginning and end of it? Well, I think that's a, that's a slightly one-sided view, Nick. I think the um, race courses wouldn't agree that they're less adept at looking after the customer when they bring them in through the gate. I think we do an increasingly good job of looking after. Oh, but that, that, but that's not that's David. That's not what I said because I think race courses can be extremely good at, can be extremely good at looking after customers in certain circumstances. It's about um, what, who they're catering for and how. So, you know, as I say, being able to put on a big event and compete in a competitive leisure market, yeah, they can they can definitely do that more effectively with, with, with better suppliers than they could 10, 15 years ago. But can they provide, well, quality of sport for a starter and enough of a positive race day experience for those people who are regular race goers to get those regular race goers to either maintain or increase the times that they go racing through the year. Uh, we're in the face at the moment of you going racing where and, and, and a race course executive privately bemoaned this to me earlier this week, said we're not having horses go, go past the grandstand on the way to the start. We're not using pre-parade rings. Horses are in the paddock. Um, for for two minutes, one trainer told me he himself had to go down to the pre-parade ring at one race course and tell his fellow trainers to get the horses in the paddock so that the public could see them. You know, all these little things are, have got very slack and slapdash since COVID, and I, I think it, it the, 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 they're, they they're not things that that you can you can stick on a shiny press release, but they're really important to making sure that people keep coming back racing. 
No, I think you raised some lots of good points in there, Nick. I think the the issue, for example, around horses in the parade ring and and, and is part of some of the initiatives coming out of the industry strategy. Because not only do we want them in the parade ring, we'd like them in the parade ring in number order if we can get them there, which is obviously much easier from a broadcast. Well, indeed, and to be able to, to actually see what number they are when they've got a, a, a sheet a sheet on in the winter. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree with that. So the, a lot of those sort of on-course practices are being looked at as part of uh, what we're doing with the industry strategy. And you'll see improvements in that gradually over the year. The other thing, I think there's an interesting article in the Racing Post about uh, on-time starts. Uh, mm. And that's something we also have to improve. And, and I think you'll you'll see that change as well over the course of the coming months to be much better. I, I read the league table was some slightly depressing because the Irish courses seem to be on the whole better than the, the English and British courses. So we have to get better at that as well. All right, David, unless lest you thought that everyone had had enough of t- talking about transparency, the thoroughbred group and media rights, maybe that's where we should should draw this to a, to a conclusion. One significant part of your membership has gone on record and has, in fairly punchy fashion, uh, dismissed the idea of media rights transparency. That's uh, Martin Crudders from ARC, the same week as uh, the Jockey Club made to uh, say that they were going to be more transparent about um, disclosing their media rights. You're the chief executive of the RCA. Who's right? Well, I think in in that sense, Nick, both parties are right. Um, How can but how can both parties be right if you're if you're if you're trying to contribute to an overall strategy to grow the sport and are in uh, in key positions of leverage on on committees that are designed and and built to do that? How can you say both those both those approaches are correct? Always being diplomatic between my members, Nick. But well, no, I understand seriously. your need for diplomacy, but just who's right? Well, I think they're, they're, they are both right in different ways. If I if I look at the, the TRP, the ARC sort of position. What Martin is absolutely right in saying is there's too much obsession with one number, i.e. media rights. Media rights are just one line item in the P&L of a race course. You know, we, the thoroughbred group don't ask us for, please disclose your hospitality numbers. And actually, in, in many race courses, the larger race courses, the hospitality numbers are much higher than the media rights numbers. So in that sense, where Martin says that there's too much focus on one number and and therefore what's the the right thing to do with disclosing that number, uh, he's right. Because what we ought to be doing is looking at what the total profit and loss account of a race course looks like and finding a mechanism to make sure that that it is uh, fairly distributed to the thoroughbred group. But Nevin's right as well, because what Nevin's been doing very well over the last couple of years, and I think that came out in in his release is the Jockey Club have been uh, providing uh, briefings, uh, P&L reviews of their business model to thoroughbred group members for over two years. So this idea about calling for transparency is not a new thing. We've been doing it for for ages. You may remember the RCA did a full deep dive into the the profitability of racecourses, disclosing media rights numbers, etc., um, about three years ago as well. So... This this idea that suddenly there's this new transparency coming along is completely is completely false. The Jockey Club, I think, have presented something like 120 people over that period, including pretty much all the leading figures in the thoroughbred group uh, camp, uh, many of them more than once. So uh, the other area that's important is that there are. And do you do you think it's do you think it's good that the Jockey Club have done that? 
Yeah, it is good. I mean, I, I've, I've. Is it? I've is it? Po- is it? Is it positive? Is it positive for the industry as a whole that that's the position that, that that's the, the the direction that they've gone in? I think it is because yeah. their, their view is that we're not we're not trying to hide things, but they, what they want to do is rather than just present a single cold number, if you like, what they want to do is to present a proper explanation of the business mm. model. Okay, so That's so where I think the gap is. all right. So why can't Arc do the same thing then? Well, Arc can do the same thing, and, and and may well do so in private at the right moments. But I think you know the the. Uh, the question often asked is why focus on just one number and why do you want the numbers in the first place? And I think the, 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 the second But I still, I, still, I still haven't got an answer to my original question, which was whose strategy is right. They're two totally different strategies. Whose strategy is better for the growth of the sport? Well, I think an element of you know, the roadshow type presentation done by the Jockey Club is a good idea. You know, as I was saying, we've done that before, um, and you know we'll continue to do it again, and, and, the, and the jockey club will continue to do it again. That's not our style to work like that. It doesn't mean they're wrong. And where all these different approaches come together is in the form of what are or are now called commercial partnership agreements. Mm. Um, you'll re- you'll recall, of course, there used to be prize money agreements. Then we very nearly got a set of what were then called commercial agreements agreed, and that fell over at the final hurdle in, in the conversation with ARC. And now that terminology has turned to commercial partnership agreements, which all parts of the racecourse population are comfortable with as an idea of having that type of agreement. But the most important thing is the word partnership. It's got to be a two-way street. And if we can find a way to do that, I think we'll, we'll quite easily uh, put together new commercial partnership agreements, which has actually been an ongoing process for a number of months already. Uh, and what about Peter Saville? What do you make of him? Well, Peter, Peter is obviously very smart and very articulate and, and you know, understands the issues in the sport extremely well. But essentially what he's asking for is what the thoroughbred group are already doing. So I'm not quite sure about you know how that's what he's proposing is any different, other than he sort of ventures into the language of boycotts and things like that, which has its own challenges. Um, the thoroughbred group, who, if you like, are are the the right the rights holder in this scenario, the thoroughbred group are you know adopt, approaching it the right way. In other words, a two-way partnership agreement. But essentially, what Peter Savile's work is trying to show is what the, is what the thoroughbred group are already doing. David Armstrong, Chief Executive of the RCA, and interesting that he should be so keen to talk about media rights and transparency, even though that wasn't the purpose of the interview, given the fact that he wouldn't put his head above the parapet as to who was right, uh, Martin Crudders or Nevin Truesdale. Well, of course, he's correct that they can both be right as regards looking after the interests of their own businesses. But from his RCA point of view, would he say um, who was taking the correct approach as regards benefit to the sport and that's something he wouldn't really be convincingly drawn on uh, Jonathan but I'm I'm sort of feeling like he wanted to uh, say that media rights and the obsession therein was a reductive way of trying to analyze racecourse finance on that does he have a point he has a point in the sense that it is not the only metric it's not the only consideration and as you've alluded to different racecourses have very different needs they're not all created equal and some are much more reliant on media rights income whereas others will be or gain more of their income and revenue through attendances i think it's 
I, I, it is the topic of the day, but it is almost a self-inflicted one because we've got into this position through a lack of transparency, whereby the mistrust is at such a level now that racing's almost got itself into this position where you've got us and them between the race courses and the participants. And media rights is just the the hot topic and the hot point of debate at the moment. I think in an ideal world, you can almost understand why some race courses wouldn't want to necessarily completely open their books because all of these things are commercially sensitive. It's competitive between different businesses. You can understand that. With from a logical sense and when things are going well and everybody's getting their slice of the pie and prize money's healthy and everything's great and there's rainbows in the sky you can understand why you might not even be that interested but given the situation and the headwinds and the the difficulties in terms of finance financing racing that you've covered at great length in this podcast you almost think where you need to assume almost like a war footing where you do need greater transparency between the participants and the race courses. It's we're not in an ordinary scenario. There is a, a great many challenges coming up. That relationship between participants and race courses has always been symbiotic, but they are going to rely on each other even more when times get difficult financially with affordability checks and the like coming up uh, over the hill. Um, so I was I was encouraged to see that the thoroughbred group is having these. Uh, positive commercial conversations I was encouraged by the jockey club's willingness to open its books it does make you wonder why it wasn't done years ago given the dis- the mistrust that has developed uh, under the surface right I've got a, um, a quote from the levy board about the possible rescheduling of the Clarence house um, as we are recording um we are in discussions with the BHA at the moment around funding and logistics, but it is the BHA that appropriately leads this process. It worked well last year for the race to be reopened, which led to additional runners and a more competitive field. So we'd be supportive of that if this is the direction of travel the BHA choose. The question of how much the race would be run for will be the subject of discussions and will depend on an interplay of factors. We will make our contribution, the levy board contribution, public knowledge. Um, that's always rather nice because that then tells you exactly how much everybody else has has put into the pot. And of course, sponsors have to be taken into account as well. And that is normally where you'd end up with the biggest shortfall. And that's where racecourses would then find it a struggle to match a sponsorship shortfall with additional executive contributions. Um, And obviously the levy board helps out an enormous amount. So there we are. I think we are moving roughly in the direction that we suggested at the beginning of the program on that. Now, the use of Britain's roadways is absolutely vital for so many thoroughbreds. Uh, the way that racing yards are, are set out, laid out across towns and villages across the country. It's a wonderful sight for people to witness, but clearly it comes with attendant hazards. Uh, the British Horse Society is driving forward initiatives to reduce those hazards, to make riding on the roads much safer at all times. Uh, and nowhere does that apply more to our world. I'm joined by uh, broadcaster Lizzie Greenwood-Hughes, uh, who's covered uh, equestrian sport extensively is a, a huge racing fan, but is also an ambassador for the British Horse Society's uh, bid to reduce accidents on the road. Lizzie, good morning. Just tell me what the BHS is doing. Morning, Nick. Well, the BHS, I mean, this isn't a new thing in as much as the BHS have been doing this for years. They work really hard to try and keep us safe on the roads. And when I say us, I mean all horse riders, from the happy hackers to 
as you say, to, to racing strings that are going out in Lambourne or Newmarket or wherever. So they've been trying for a long time. They lobby government, they lobby driving instructors, you know, they have a lot of, they work very closely with the police. They were the reason that the highway code changed. I don't know if you're aware, because 80% of the country aren't aware, but a couple of years ago, the highway code changed to say that if you pass a horse on the road, you have to go 10 miles an hour and you have to be two meters from them. And as someone who rides on the road all the time, not everyone knows this, and it's still pretty bloody dangerous out there, frankly. Um, in the last 13 years, so since 2010, 44 people, people, humans, have died on the roads, on horses, and 570 horses have been killed. So this is a thing, this is a proper thing. And the British Horse Society, as I say, for a long time, brilliant team of Alan and Des in their safety department have been trying to make it safer for all of us. And the reason I'm talking to you this morning is I was having one of my regular meetings with them. I'm just a voluntary safety ambassador for them and I do what I can to try and help. I've done videos and various things. And they were saying they were trying to increase the number of people who report incidents. They've got this thing called the BHS Horse Eye app. Mm -hmm. You can get it on your Google Play or your, your, you know, your app store. It's free. And anytime there's any kind of road incident, whether that's caused by a car or a flying, air, uh, you know, an aeroplane or whatever, but if you're on the road, you can report it. And they were saying to me that they, it was very popular and they'd had lots of people use it, but they still needed more. And they were trying to reach out to other equestrians, other areas. And we were talking about eventing and dressage. And I said, not many of those ride on the road, to be honest. But anyway, we were talking about all the other areas. And I said, well, what about racing? Because I remember from the time that I rode out with Jamie Osborne when I was doing my charity race, that actually we did come across lots of cars. And it was kind of a bit hairy at times, not just because I was on a two-year-old that didn't go in a straight line but you know also because we were having to kind of deal with cars so they said yeah they'd like to do stuff for racing and I said well we should talk to Nick and see if we can do something on your brilliant podcast so so that's why I'm on so what we want is if you're riding no matter what you're doing and you have any kind of hairy moment please report it because without that data they they don't have the information to go to government and say well actually we had 5,000 people report the A whatever it is in in hampshire or you know they, they need that data um because without it it's much harder for them to bring about action and the more incidents that are logged mm -hmm. the more evidence the bhs has to protect the rights of horses and riders on britain's roads and, and obviously and we we see an awful list awful lot of this with these um social media debates between cyclists and angry road users uh, we have to respect everybody on the road and to what extent lizzie do you think it's important for riders to realize their responsibilities to other other road users to try and foster a harmonious a harmonious relationship well i mean here's another stat so a quarter of incidents that were logged last year were to do to do with road rage or abuse to a horse rider and i get this all the time where i, I i'm like waving at them to slow down and they're like what do you want man get it you know why aren't you well some of us have got to go to work and, and i'm like well i've actually already done a day's work i'm just i got up earlier than you but there is this thing where people think that horse riders are entitled, feel entitled and that they're posh and they're arrogant and all of that stuff. And we know that actually most people involved with horses on a riding level are pretty normal. But there is, unfortunately, um, a bit of a look that some riders have and they, they, they don't necessarily smile. And, you know, they might and it might be because their horse is misbehaving. They're trying to control them. But you've got to love the drivers who behave. You've got to give them a beaming smile and say thank you. And, and thank you properly. It's my biggest bugbear 
I embarrass my children on a regular basis by stopping the car and I get out and I say, hey, where's my thank you? You're making my life more dangerous when I'm riding. So all of us have a responsibility, all of us who ride horses on the road to love the drivers who behave themselves. I phone HGV companies and say, do you know what? Your drivers were amazing today. Thank you. Please tell them. And then I'll phone them if they didn't behave. But to be fair, most HGVs actually are pretty good due to the brilliant work that the BHS have done. It's actually the kind of normal people that are flying past me at 50. Or like a car yesterday had its exhaust hanging off. And I was on my daughter's little 13-hand cob just trying to exercise it. And we ended up almost in the next county because this car was dragging its exhaust along the road. Anyway, he didn't get a thank you. Um, it was quite hairy. But yeah, so sorry, I digress. But we've just got to love them. We've got to love the drivers that behave and just gently remind those who don't that they need to slow down for horses. Uh, Lizzie Greenwood-Hughes, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Next week is um, Cervical Cancer Awareness Week. That runs from the 22nd to the 28th of January. And the um, syndicate Old Gold Racing has raised over £30,000 in funds and much in terms of awareness for cervical cancer. Uh, and they're just £10,000 short of their target, but it could well exceed that. Ed Seyfried from Old Gold Racing joins me now. Ed, how have you managed to do this, and what was the what was the impetus for doing it? Well, it obviously starts with a sadness, um, because Katie Pritchard, who was born in my next-door village, uh, died sadly of complications in the summer, uh, of complications uh, after diagnosis of cervical cancer. Um, her father is called Peter Pritchard, who has the possible um, bad luck to have known me all of my life, given that I grew up with him, or at least so I grew up in the next village. And he and I, every Friday night, drink in a very good pub in South Warwickshire called the Royal Oak. And he's watched me grow old gold racing from absolutely nowhere to having 20, 25 odd horses in training. And he suggested to me that we syndicate a horse um, with a view of raising money to, to cervical cancer charities and indeed also the hospice where where katie died um so we didn't have to think terribly long about it um peter trained many many winners over the years um he particularly wanted to give something back to racing and also demonstrate how charitable racing is i mean you can scarcely go to a race course now without leaving it you know, putting some coins or some notes into a sort of bucket. I think racing more than any other sport just seems to look over the parapet into other areas much more than I've seen elsewhere. But maybe I'm biased. But anyway, so um, racing has given me a livelihood and it's given Peter livelihood for a very long time. So what he wanted was something to um, preserve poor Katie's memory. And she died leaving two kids um, under five and a bereaved husband whilst also giving her friends and family and everyone who knew her some joy and something to follow. So um, Pete very kindly donated a very, very striking black, she's known as Jet in the, in the yard, so she really is Jet Black Mare, who's a daughter of a four or five times winner that he trained called it, Here Comes Annie. Um, and by passing glance, who also um, my current favourite long-distance hurdle of Daffle Drasher is a passing glance, so quite something. And um, we got Anthony Bromley to value uh, 
Jet, now called Katie Sunny Dancer, and I'll come back to that. But um, to value Katie Sunny Dancer at £20,000. Um, and then, so we thought that if we syndicated the horse, we could donate the value of the horse, Katie Sunny Dancer, to certain cancer charities. Um, but we also put a compulsory £10 donation in too. So actually for every share that's sold, £20 goes to um, one of two charities, either the Lady Garden Foundation or Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust, half and half. Um, and actually our own fee, or at least a large percentage of it, um, goes to the Mighton House Hospice, um, which is where Katie died. And I think so far we've donated £30,000 to the two charities and £5,000 to the Mighton House Hospice. Um, and she's not even gone to go and see her trainer yet. So we're, we're nicely on the road for raising a lot of money and hopefully creating a lot of awareness for a disease that is, depending on who you talk to, um, avoidable and curable. Actually, I can't let you go, Ed, without asking you about the old gold racing star, Apple Away, who finished second in a very good-looking Hampton novices chase at Warwick the other day behind Grey Dawning. Um, what did you make of the run? Um... Well, I mean, we were thrilled. She's a she's a great flag bearer for us. Um, I think it was amusing um, to hear Tom Skudamore say, or broadcast before, that he, that he thought that Apple Away was the best horse in the race, but might but might not win on the day, but that Grey Dawning would. And obviously, that caused a little bit of um, consternation between father and son, um, but turned out to be exactly right. Um, I think with hindsight, and I think like a lot of us, certainly a lot of the members of, of the syndicate of Apple Away, we are learning a lot. And Warwick is a is a course for real speed speedsters, which I think Apple isn't so much. She's a, a out and out stare. I mean, I think we possibly got caught out by the race course, but I think she learnt a hell of a lot. And I think those five fences down the back straight, they really taught her to settle. Um, she did make one or two rookie errors um, and possibly paid for that a bit but you know it's 2-1 now uh, apple away versus gray dawning um we have an entry in the brown advisory which i think might be lucinda's choice and we have an entry in the day before on the tuesday in the amateur riders three mile six um, which i think might be um Scoo's choice um we'll leave it to them to arm wrestle it out because sounds good to me Good. Thanks to Ed Seyfried and to uh, Lizzie Greenwood-Hughes uh, earlier in the, the show. I presume, Jonathan Harding, that you always um, uh, abide by the highway code when you're riding? Uh, religiously so, yes. Good. Do you have a tip for me for today? I do, yes. It's from the 250 at Wolverhampton, because uh, we're sort of left with the all-weather. It's a horse called Outreach for Mark Usher. I won over course and distance on Boxing Day and has only gone up £2 for that, so I think he ought to be bang there. That's Outreach in the 250 at Wolverhampton. Great stuff, Jonathan. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. That was Friday, January the 19th. Uh, we will be back again on Monday. Bye for now. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.